This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Our country is in crisis with this virus, but we're here to provide encouragement to answer your questions about God's Word, maybe even the events that are going on, and you'd like to talk about that and discuss that. Uh, You can call us locally at 843-525-1859, or if you like, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. So uh, we always give, of course, our preference to live callers, and we'll do our best to take uh, the calls today and to respond to the needs that you have. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started here. All right. Denise from Bluffton writes, can you help me understand election, predestination, and foreknowledge? If we have free will, but God already chose us, then how free is this will? I know it is God's will for that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If God's foreknowledge only means that he saw that uh, what choice we would ultimately make in choosing his son as our Lord and Savior, therefore he accepts us on that basis, wouldn't that mean we are actually acting like God and as a result we would then be directing his will and wish for me? Heaven forbid. Or is this verse speaking directly to the Old Testament Israelites, whereby God chose those people through which to reveal his glory? I'm a God-fearing woman who knows his word is without error and is only my lack of knowledge and weak understanding that causes me to pose these questions. Well, there's a lot of questions there, so let me see if I can hit on some of the major points. But I would encourage uh, Denise to maybe listen to my series on the book of Romans, starting in the 8th chapter uh, we find what we, I, we often call the golden chain of salvation there, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called. It's actually a, a noun. The King James captures it well, to those who are the called. It's articular, referring to a particular group of people, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be um, firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's an unbroken chain of events that begins with God's foreknowledge and really carries all the way through our glorification. It affirms, among other things, the eternal security of the believer. Now, um, I will begin by just saying that there's a lens that people often base how they view these texts of Scripture based on their view of Israel. And so John Calvin had a very warped and distorted view on the nation of Israel, as did Martin Luther and a number of other people. And so if he um, believed and started with the premise, as he did, that the church has replaced Israel, then he's going to have to do a lot of 
um, gymnastics with not only this text, but the three chapters that follow. The book of Romans has three major sections to it. There is what we call the doctrinal section. That's one through eight. There's a national section, nine through 11, and then the applicational section, 12 through 16. That's not to say that doctrine is not applicational. It is. But in broad terms, that's how the book divides, much like other books of the Bible, Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrine, what we believe, 4 through 6, how we behave, because your belief always influences your behavior. And so in the national section, 9 through 11, he is dealing with the people of Israel. He's dealing with how do you deal with the Jew? If nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, then a logical question to ask would be, well, what about the Jew? Because God said he would love them with an everlasting love. And Paul demonstrates that God has not abandoned the Jew, that it was a Jew who had abandoned the Lord. And so in Romans 9, he shows how Israel was elected out of all the nations of the world. In chapter 10, he shows their current rejection Why are they in unbelief? And it's for the same reason that people today are in unbelief. They're seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. If you don't need a Savior, then why call upon him in faith, as he will admonish people to do? And then in chapter 11, he deals with their future restoration. So you've got, you know, amillennialists today that say there is no coming kingdom for Israel. Why? Because God's done with Israel. Why? Because they rejected Jesus as a nation, as the Messiah. But that is, so, you, you know, you've got people like John Piper and others who, who that's their view, that's their flavor, R.C. Sproul, a number of people. I think they're wrong. So when they come to this golden chain of salvation, they reinterpret foreknowledge. But listen, Foreknowledge, prognosco, or progoesis in terms of the verb, um, it is a reference to knowledge beforehand. Peter, for instance, in First uh, Peter chapter one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. How are they chosen? Listen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So I take it, gnosis is the word for knowledge. When you put the prefix on it, it means beforehand knowledge. God chooses people based on his beforehand knowledge. It's not God lovingly choosing this person to go to heaven and this person to go to hell or overlooking them to go to heaven, depending on whether you believe in singular or double predestination. No, it's it's God's... um, knowledge of how man would respond. You say, well, if God knew in advance, then we're not free. No, if God didn't know, he wouldn't be God. That's part part of his omniscience. But the scripture very often just uses this term for prior knowledge. For instance, uh, if I flip over a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm looking now at, uh, here it is, verse uh, 17, you therefore beloved Knowing this beforehand, by the way, that's the exact same verb that we just used where it says God chose us based on his foreknowledge. Knowing this beforehand, in other words, this was beforehand knowledge that you had. Um, Let me give another example in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. In in Acts 26, we uh, read this um, 
Paul is giving a defense uh, before King Agrippa, and he says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me. And again, here it is, who knew, who literally, who before knew, who prognosco, he uses the same verb. So we have many illustrations that we could harvest from Scripture where the verb means or the word to know something in advance, to know something beforehand. And that's how Paul is using it. And so when God speaks of beforehand knowledge, he's speaking of what he knew in eternity past. And it doesn't change man's free will at all. Uh, You are a free moral agent to receive Jesus as Lord and to reject him. Now, some would say that what I just said is pure Arminianism. But listen, I don't think that man on his own can come to Christ. I don't think that there's a spark within man that allows him all by himself, independently of the Lord, to make a decision for Christ. The Bible is clear on the doctrine of total depravity, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Look, if you stand over a coffin, you can't make a dead man respond. Uh, He has to respond um, by a supernatural work. He would have to come back to life. And so we are dead in trespasses and sins. Paul can say there's none who seeks God, no, not one. So God has to take the initiative, and he does. And when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if you had any interest in the things of God, it didn't begin with you. It began with the living God. He was the one who worked first in your heart so that you would have that interest. But then, as a free moral agent, you can choose whether or not you're going to respond or whether you are going to reject. And so, um, again, that's the short answer, but I think it will hopefully help you. But if you really want to study this in depth, then listen to at least maybe the last two messages in Romans 8 in all of the messages on Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I walk through you know, the passages that people use to say that God selected one to go to heaven and the other to go to hell, and we look at them in their original Old Testament context to see what they mean. Anyway, great question. Uh, Let's go to the next one. I think you have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed, Pastor, and this caller is calling from Springfield, Georgia. So let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. This is Faye in Springfield, Georgia. All right. Thanks for calling. um, Thank you for your knowledge, your wealth of knowledge. Praise God for that. But anyway, Second Chronicles 14 that we love to repeat and we hold on to, we all pretty much know it, and my people who are called by my name. Well, just prior to that, in 13, it refers to, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts, to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. And then it goes into the promise, the sweet promise. And um, I know that the Southern Baptists last weekend, they also had declared a national day of prayer, and they referred to Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short, that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that he it cannot hear. But then in number two, it says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face. 
from you so that he does not hear. So I just think in light of everything, and I know the Bible is just full of a wealth of wisdom and guidance, and I just think, unfortunately, as Christians, a lot of times we want all the promises, but we don't realize the consequences. And I just like your your wealth of knowledge. Sure. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. You know, there used to be a Christian radio station once, Rick, in Springfield, Georgia, but uh, they didn't have the financial support and they had to sell it. It became a country western station. But by God's grace, we were able, as you know, to up our power and to cover that area. Yes, indeed. And I'm so glad that that listener is able to hear us now. Yes. Yeah, so with that said, context is everything. And Second Chronicles 714 all the time is used out of context. Thus, Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people... Who are called by name, my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God, as he appears to Solomon, is reminding him of the Mosaic uh, covenant. There are different covenants, agreements that God made, some that are specifically directed to the nation of Israel. And one is the Mosaic covenant. And you can read the terms of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, and 30. And to sum it up in a few sentences, God basically says, if you obey me, I will honor you and I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I am going to chastise you and discipline you. Why? Because those whom the Lord loves, he chastises. And Solomon himself will include that in his Proverbs that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. And so God is just reminding him as he dedicates this place um, that God calls his house. It was the place where God met under the old covenant. God had a temple for his people under the new deal. God has a people who are his temple. And he says, if you see a scenario where the heavens are shut up, there's no rain or the locusts are coming on the land. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's a God judging disciplining his people Israel for their disobedience. But if in the context of that, those people humble themselves, then God will heal the land. That's a promise. Now, can you take this and apply it? The question really becomes to uh, the modern day scenario that we live in, the world that we live in. I would say yes or no. Um, Yes, in the sense that if there's any people who should be seeking the throne of God and humbling themselves before the God, before God, it's the people of God. And that's born again believers, be they Jew or Gentile. We are the people who have the promised access to the Lord uh, to have our prayer here heard. The only real promised prayer that God typically first promises to hear is that of the unbeliever calling upon Christ in faith. That's not exclusively true because Cornelius, or Cornelius, if you prefer, uh, was not converted, not born again, and yet God said his prayers came as a memorial, that God was pleased with his prayers. That was the prayer of an unbeliever, but God was working in his heart. He was responding to what he knew, 
and he was on the way to salvation. And sometimes God answers the prayer of an unbeliever to get their attention to bring them to genuine faith. So the line that, well, God never hears the prayer of a lost man in under any circumstances except in calling upon him in faith is not totally true. In fact, the, the promises of God not hearing prayer, like the one you just quoted from Isaiah 59, or we could have quoted Isaiah 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And so God is asking Israel to humble themselves, and what will he do? He'll remove the locusts. He'll bring the rain back. He will heal their land. Well, God now has a people who are not physically, for the most part, uh, located in one particular area of the world that we call Israel. That's why Paul, when he quotes the Decalogue in Ephesians chapter 6, he admonishes children to honor their dads and moms, to obey their authority, and the promises that it may be well with you. And he's quoting from two passages, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are found, and uh, that you might live a long time. Now, in the Mosaic Covenant, that you might live a long time on the land. When Paul recites it under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says that you might live long on the earth. And so now God doesn't have a localized people to a localized geographical region, but he has an international community that is across the planet. And so he changes the focus up. The promise still continues, but the focus changes. So let's think about it as a nation. Proverbs does says, Solomon writes, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So with that said, if righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people, is it possible for God through the prayer of born-again people um, to bring blessing on a land? And I would say, well, well, yes. Um, God certainly can bring uh, blessing on that nation as Proverbs 14.34 uh, describes. But the more godless the nation becomes— the less opportunity for God to bless the people that are in that nation and the people who enjoy that benefits. And so America, we've never officially been what we would call a Christian nation, but there's no question. You have to rewrite history, as many want to do today, that we have strong Christian roots and a strong influence that born-again Christians had, even on deists like Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and because of that, I think God really honored uh, the church in America, blessed it, multiplied it. And because of that, we were able to carry the gospel to the world and became one of the most prosperous nations on the face of the earth. Is God pleased with America today? I would say no. God's very unhappy with America. And a lot of that goes back to the church because we have a fake church we have a church that names the name of Christ, but many of those people are not really genuinely born again. And then even amongst those who are born again, and I would say that the primary responsibility lands in the pulpit. You've got, you know, these people who are undertaught or people who are being led by false teachers. I was in a prayer conference call on Sunday and one representative was talking about Stephen Furtick, and I think, does this guy even know who Stephen Furtick is? And I'm not doubting that this guy was a believer. I hope he is. I don't know him personally. 
Um, but with that said, he's he's sitting under a sheer heretic week after week after week, a false teacher. But you see, people today know so little of Scripture, they lack discernment. A discernment comes through knowing God's Word and obeying it. And a lot of people are just grossly ignorant of basic Bible truth. And so, like even last Sunday, I, I referenced uh, Jen Hatmaker, who sold tens of thousands of books through Lifeway, which is an evangelical press, uh, for years and years. I would never allow her stuff in my church because, one, I felt like she was shaky, just like I've never allowed Beth Moore's material into our church because I think she's very shaky. Uh, she lives in disobedience. Last Sunday, she preached in an evangelical church over men. That's disobedience. That's violating First Timothy 2.12. And she would raise the flag and say, well, the pastor gave me permission, and I'm under his authority. No pastor has authority to give someone else authority what God expressly forbids. And God says a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. But this same woman, Beth Moore, now, you know, she's waving her flag and saying how wonderful it was to be on Jen Hatmaker's podcast during the month of January. Why is she waving her flag? Um, Jen Hatmaker, you know, is endorsing gay marriage. When asked directly, do you think gay marriage is holy? Yes. That's the words of a heretic. That's the words of a false teacher. And thank God when she finally made that aspect clear that Lifeway dropped her. They should drop Beth Moore unless Beth Moore is willing to come out with a public rebuke and say, I should have never been on her podcast. But you see, those men are weak. We have men at Lifeway Publishers who are weak men. I know some of them. They're weak men. I know one of them, I should say. And he's a weak man. And because of that, uh, they're in it for, I hate to say, she's the cash cow for the place. And if they lose Beth Moore, they lose millions of dollars. They've already had to close down all their bookstores across the nation. Everything now is online. Um, I don't think God's hand of blessing is on that. So is God pleased with America? Of course not. We've got the majority, I would say, the majority of politicians who go against Israel God says, I'll bless the nation that blesses Israel. I'll curse the nation that curses Israel. I mean, we can't expect and The only reason I think God is still allowing us to hang on some is for the simple reason that at least we have a president. I don't care what you think about our president, whether you think he's born again or not, and I don't know. I hope he is. I mean, there are some people who say he is. I don't know. Um, if he is, he's at best a baby, 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 baby Christian. Uh, but he stands for Israel, and God can bless that, and God can honor that. And so uh, that's something that people shouldn't criticize him for. You're probably living a much better lifestyle because of that. But we're murdering little babies. I mean, who would have ever thought we'd come to the point where a baby could be born alive, surviving an abortion, and we can say, kill it. But that's where we are in America. And uh, we are waving the flag in promoting sexual perversion on every level, both with heterosexuals and with homosexuals. We're writing laws in favor of the ultimate rejection. I reject the way you created me, God, as a transgender person. I reject the way you've called me to function in embracing homosexuality. I mean, just in, in heterosexuals, I reject the standards that you have for me so I'm going to have sex before and then outside of marriage. And so everything's coming unglued. 
And so we're not seeing through this virus what we would call eschatological wrath. We are seeing the wrath of God that is being revealed. And it's not just in our nation. It's across the world. It is across the world. And I think it's a precursor to what is yet to come. And uh, you're seeing living proof of what we've been studying in the Revelation, how the nations of the world in a moment of time are going to come together under a world leader. Why? Because they're going to be desperate. And we're seeing just a small expression of that desperation in our day. And people haven't seen anything yet. Wait till the church is removed and God begins to release his seal, bowl, and trumpet judgment. So again, just to summarize my answer, the promise of Second Chronicles 7.14 is to Israel. That's not to say that God could not move through the intercessory prayer, but there's no guarantee. The guarantee for this right here that I will definitely, definitively, absolutely heal your land is if my people Israel repent of their sin and make their heart right. If we had every Christian in America today living right for the Lord, it wouldn't necessarily mean that God would heal America. It would not. And to say that that's what Second Chronicles 7.14 is saying is to misrepresent God's clear, specific word. We may, as a people, because the church, the true church, is now such a minority in America, gone so far that we are only going to see God's displeasure and total judgment on the nation. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray and intercede because God commands us to do so in First Timothy. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call this morning. My question, Pastor, is if you could discuss the different views on the rapture from Scripture. I've always been taught the pre-tribulational, uh, premillennial uh, rapture. I believe that's the most biblical position. But I have a pastor friend who recently was saying that he's gone more to a post-tribulational rapture position and that the pre-millennial, I'm sorry, the pre-tribulational position is more of a recent advent within the last century or so. Um, I'm not sure that he's correct, but if you if you could maybe bring some clarity to that and just go from Scripture, um, what the Bible says, how the Bible points out, when the rapture is going to take place, um, that would be helpful. I'd appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the question, and um, so he's basically saying he's post-tribulational, premillennial. Uh, it's very much of a minority view, and let me explain why. Um, when you let's first talk about the millennium. The word millennium, millennial, uh, is a theological term that describes the thousand-year reign of Christ, and so sometimes we speak of the. Uh, Chileastic reign of Christ. Chileism is the English word for uh, for a thousand, and so uh, Christ will rule for a thousand years on the earth. Now, understand first that the length of the millennium or the kingdom of Jesus on the earth, uh, which we pray, Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth, literally as it is in heaven. They were praying for the coming of the kingdom. And the length, however, is revealed in the New Testament. The fact that there will be a kingdom where the Messiah will rule on David's throne is plainly taught uh, in the Old Testament. And it's taught as it refers to the people of Israel. Uh, Now, with that said, 
the premillennial view says Jesus will return at the second coming, then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. He'll come back to the earth. That's Zechariah 14. His feet will literally touch the Mount of Olives, and he'll split it in two. At the ascension, if you remember, where are they? They're on the Mount of Olives. And they're watching Jesus, you know, float up into the sky the way a child would watch his balloon that's filled with helium. And they keep watching it and watching it and watching it and until they can no longer see it. Well, that's what they were doing with the Lord Jesus. And, of course, um, two men, two angels appeared as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you will come in just the same manner as you have watched him go into heaven. What way the same manner? He literally, physically, actually left the planet. Jesus will literally, physically, actually come back to planet Earth. Now, again, there are people who are amillennial, and the amillennialist says there is no thousand-year reign for Christ. And again, this all comes down to their view of Israel. And so you had Augustine, who was influenced by some people before him who were afraid to say, well, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to be king. He's going to rule. They didn't want their heads chopped off. And so you went from the church father writings that taught a premillennial view to um, the view of Augustine that was later adopted by Roman Catholics and most of the reformers that you read who have the press in our day. But remember, there were believers before the Protestant reformers who were never a part of the Roman church, never wanted to be a part of it, and they were independent churches like Community Bible Church or independent churches across our nation under all kinds of different stripes. So with that said... Um, the Bible is clear that no Messiah will come back. But Augustine said, no, there is no kingdom. Uh, God is done with the Jew. And so Augustine said some very hateful things about the Jewish people as well. And I'm sure he regretted what he said when he met the Lord. Um, But the scripture is clear. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil is taken away from you will be divided among you. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Uh, We studied this in the Revelation, uh, how uh, the Lord God will uh, gather the nations of the world to go against Israel. Um, And so that's going to happen. That's the battle of Armageddon. And then it says, in that day, in verse 4, I'm reading Zechariah 14, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west to a very large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Has that ever happened? Never. Uh, so what does the Calvinist, the Reformed theologian of our day, does? He, he comes to one of two conclusions. He either just spiritualizes that. Well, that's just a parable. That's just uh, representing, you know, some spiritual truth. Or he says, no, that was something that God wanted to literally do, but he is not going to literally do because of Israel's disobedience. And so they take the covenant that God made with Israel as being conditional. Well, there are aspects of the covenants, and there's a number of them that God made, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so forth, uh, that some aspects of the covenant were conditional in nature. 
But in the Abrahamic covenant, God makes an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. And so in spite of Israel's obedience or disobedience, God is going to fulfill certain promises that he made to the people of Israel. And so the early church fathers were premillennialists. They were not amillennialists. They didn't say there is no um, alpha negating the millennium. They said they didn't say there was no millennium. There was 100 years ago what we called postmillennialists. And they said that we're in the millennium, that things would get better and better and better and better and better. And then Jesus would come. He would come after the thousand years. Of course, when that thousand years started, they all debated amongst themselves. Um, then World War I came, and a lot of people said, well, maybe postmillennialism isn't right. And then World War II came, and just about all the postmillennialists were gone. So there's the premillennial view that is, Jesus will come before the millennium. And to deny a literal fulfillment, of um, of Christ coming to the Mount of Olives is really to deny what the angel said. He's coming the exact same way he left. And he left literally, physically, actually from the Mount of Olives. He is literally, physically, actually coming back to the Mount of Olives. In fact, when he comes, it says here in verse 8 of this chapter, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other to- a half toward the western sea. Uh, which is, again, very interesting. But to deny the literal fulfillment here of Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8, then one has to also deny the literal planting of Christ's feet on the Mount of Olives. And you have to deny a lot of other verses, like in Ezekiel 47, 8 through 10, the result of this water uh, going to the Dead Sea will make the Dead Sea fresh and men will be able to fish in it. Now, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Now, it is true that the Dead Sea has been evaporating, and it has been receding. And when I first went to Israel, my first trip in 1989, the Dead Sea came all the way up to the roadway. And now you can look in some places half a mile from the roadway to see where the water's edge is. It's receding, and there's a number of reasons for that. I won't go into it this morning. But God says a day is coming when that sea will be fresh. Now, I know they came out Fox News or someplace about a year ago, and they said, oh, there's some life in the Dead Sea, and they find some micro... No, that was not the Dead Sea and the actual waters of the Dead Sea. That was where the waters had receded, and there were, um, you know, again, it's if you've ever been down there to the Dead Sea, it's in a desert region, and sinkholes have begun to start. In fact, the, the, the very parking lot that I went into the first time I went into the Dead Sea, and then when I went there six years ago, we brought a whole busload in, and we, we swam at this particular location. It doesn't exist anymore. The whole thing was swallowed up, thank God, in the middle of the night, but the whole thing was swallowed up in a sinkhole. And so then what happens is all this dirt from the desert begins to silt over that sinkhole and in and other holes that have been developed. And so then some fresh water can actually make it, and they find some microorganisms, but not even any fish. God says literally there's going to be fish, and the fishermen are going to dry their nets. That's never happened. So if you're a millennialist, you have to say, well, either, you know, you spiritualize those and more, though, would just take the place and say, God's done with Israel. God's not done is with Israel. Read Jeremiah 31. God says, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are hanging in the sky, 
that's how long I am going to be committed to the people of Israel. So you really have to warp Scripture. But that warping of Scripture affects every realm of theology. It affects the realm of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of end times, uh, your soteriology, how God elects people. So in Romans 9, a previous question today, it's not God choosing one nation over another, yet that's the commentary. Two nations are in your womb. The older will serve the younger. Uh, with that said, uh, it it affects your view of end times, and so it views. It, uh, so, how do you interpret prophecy? Well, you have to apply a different principle of interpretation. So, what you might want to do, this caller, is listen to my opening message on the Book of Revelation. And Revelation will be start airing pretty soon here, won't it, Rick? When when do we start airing Revelation? It will be a week. Um, actually, it's going to be this coming Monday so, on the Bible, on it, uh, Search the Scriptures. So it, it, it took three years to complete it, and uh, we started in, in March of uh, 2017, the week after Easter, and we've been preaching through it, not every single Sunday. Sometimes there's Mother's Day or Christmas, and, you know, I have appropriately, you know, modified the, the series that we're on. But it took a long time to go through it, and there's, uh, you know, over 70 hours of preaching uh, through Revelation. It's very in-depth, but in the opening message, I go through the way people interpret Revelation. There's the historical view, there's the preterist view, there's the spiritual view, and there's the futuristic view. The futuristic view is that this beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book is in the future, that it hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. And so God makes a number of promises. And so let's just take, for instance, um, as you come to the end of the book, uh, you find Christ has come, second coming, Revelation 19. Uh, The second coming has taken place. He's come back to the earth. He sets up his kingdom. Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then in Revelation 20 and verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Uh, You know, who is this referring to? Who are these people at the end of the thousand years? Well, if you hold to a post-tribulational view you don't know unless you have unbelievers entering the millennial reign of Christ. But there's too many passages, whether it's in Zechariah in the Old Testament, whether it's Ezekiel where he weeds believers out from unbelievers, whether it's the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, whether it's the uh, judgment of the Gentile nations in Matthew 25, God separates the believers from the unbelievers, the wheat from the tare, the good fish from the bad fish, and so on. Uh, There will be no unbelievers who will enter the kingdom. And so that's why most people, when they read these passages, they just spiritualize revelation. They take a preterist view, preterist from the Latin that means past. They say it was all past. The whole book of Revelation, with the exception of the second coming in Revelation 19, is all historical. The Antichrist has already been here. Or they take the historical view that Luther held, and he thought that Revelation was being fulfilled during church history, and he thought that he was alive during the tribulation, and that the Pope was the literal Antichrist. Well, obviously, that turned out to be false, and there are still people who take the historical view, and and it's different whatever century you're in. 
but the consistent view. And God gave us a divine outline of Revelation for a reason, so we couldn't mess it up. He spoke about the things in the past, that's Revelation 1, the glorified Christ, the things that are present, that's chapters 2 and 3, and then the things that are still in the future, that's chapters 4 all the way through the end of the book. So if we're raptured at the end of the tribulation, uh, then you have to have unbelievers entering the kingdom, and that goes against so many different verses in God's Word that teaches only believers enter into the kingdom. And so um, that's how you would come up with unbelievers at the end of the thousand years. But if there are no unbelievers who enter into the kingdom, and that means there's a pre-tribulational rapture, that the church goes up, we come back in glorified bodies, but people who survive the tribulation, we call them tribulation saints, they enter into their... um, uh, into the uh, thousand-year reign in their natural bodies. And if they enter into the tribulational reign in their natural bodies, then they're able to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And if the curse is lifted off of creation where the lion can lay down with the wolf and the baby can play next to the cobra's nest, and if a man's age is like that of a tree, so it would be more mimicking what God had during the days of Noah in terms of long, expanded lifetimes, but longer than that. Uh, A man could live a full thousand years, and if he lives only to be 100, he's considered to be under curse because Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. No nonsense during this time. And we'll at least have a glimpse of what God intended for Adam originally. Um, But if... uh, Tribulation saints have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Each of them will have to make a decision for Christ. And in one of my messages in Revelation, I go through six reasons why um, God is going to have a millennium. Why, Why not just take us all right to heaven and just be done with it and end it? There's a reason. And I go through six of those, and I have a whole message on that in the series on the Revelation. So what I'm trying to say is that the only way you can have one, only believers entering the thousand-year reign, and number two, uh, having people who didn't receive Christ would be for tribulation saints to enter into their natural bodies because in resurrected bodies, we neither marry nor are given a marriage. We don't procreate and have children. We're like the angels. Angels don't marry other angels and have little baby cherubs as in false artistry of the Middle Ages. No, God created a fixed number of angels never to create any more. And I have a whole course on that on angelology. That's at searchofscriptures.org. And this person might want to take the course at the Institute of Biblical Studies. I have also at Search the Scriptures on eschatology. And eschaton is the word that means last things. And so eschatology is the study of the last things or the last days. And so um, there's a huge course on that. And I go through... Why are there premillennialists? Why are there amillennialists? Why are there postmillennialists? Why is there pre-tribulational people? Why are there mid-trib people? Why are there post-trib people? Why are there partial rapturists? Why is there the post-rapture, uh, the pre-wrath rapture that one popular Jewish man held in Florida? Why are all these different views? And I walk through each of them, and I give 10 reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. And I just shared one of them with you. 
So, again, I couldn't spend the whole hour here just answering your question, but I'm directing you to some resources and certainly study the book of Revelation and go through that. And uh, you'll discover, number one, too, that this is not just some recent view. That's a straw man. Uh, There are writers in the 15th and 16th century who are arguing for a pre-tribulational rapture. But would I say that the study of eschatology in the body of Christ at large is more in the last hundred years? Yes, absolutely. Uh, In the early centuries, they're dealing with issues like the Trinity, like the sufficiency of Scripture, like the how the two natures of Christ come together and Christology and all kinds of issues. And there's not a lot of writings except to know that every Orthodox believer, as seen in the reflection of these early church fathers, believed Jesus was coming back and that he would set up a kingdom, and they didn't believe that God was done with Israel. Um, But again, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and you might want to listen to my Daniel 9 sermons, because the 70th week uh, is a, uh, the final seven years of history. We know it as the tribulation is largely first and foremost to bring Israel to faith, to put them in the forefront, because right now it's the church that is evangelizing the world, and we've had a limited success rate. But when the Jews come and they're converted, 144,000 along with two Jewish men who are going to come back, I think it's Moses and Elijah, plus an angel, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be, is going to hear the gospel, and then the end will come referring to the second coming, not, of course, the rapture, because that is imminent. So a number of resources I could direct you to, the church, the course on eschatology at the Institute of Biblical Studies. You can call Search the Scriptures if you want information on that, handouts, how to download them. You should get the Search the Scriptures app if you don't already have it, the Revelation series for certain Um, but he is going to remove the church from, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, Revelation 3.10, that is about to come upon the whole world. Has there ever been an hour of testing that has come upon the whole world? No. Look, even this flu that we're having, while in many ways it is worldwide, it's not every nation of the world yet. But the hour of testing that is going in, in, in the hour of testing he's going to delineate is not what we're seeing. This is just a sliver. This ain't nothing. I mean, what we're seeing is absolutely nothing compared to the, uh, to the rheostatic judgments of God. Like a rheostat, God's going to turn up the seals as he moves them into trumpets. And he's going to turn up the trumpets as he moves them into bulls. And so it's like, as Jesus said, a woman in labor. And so I know people all over the internet, they're going, look at all the earthquakes we're having. And now we got this this virus and this is a pestilence that Jesus said. No, it's not. This is not what he's referring to. When you study carefully the Olivet Discourse, beginning, you know, the signs of his coming all the way through verse 15, that describes the first half of the tribulation period with all the seal judgments that affect a quarter of the world. But then Jesus said there'll be an event called the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple, and that's going to change everything. And then the trumpet, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven when that happens. And then the trumpet and bowl judgments come. So we move from a quarter of the world to the trumpet judgments where a third of the world are affected. Quarter who've already been affected, then a third of what's left, 
And then in the final judgments, the bold judgments, the whole world is affected. And God said, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, household will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. I will keep you from, ek, out of, out of, literally, the hour that is to come up. You say, that's a promise to the church at Philadelphia. No, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just a promise to the church at Philadelphia, but to every God-fearing, Bible-believing church. This is still future. This is going to happen. And um, But I'll tell you this. Someone asked me, they said, it, you know, well, we've had other, you know, pestilences. We had the Spanish flu, and yeah, we have but never with the scenario that we have today. We never had Israel back in the land when we had the Spanish flu that affected so much. When we had the Black Plague, never was Israel back in the land. God said he would do that in latter times, at the last of the last days, that he would gather the Jews from the four corners of the world. And we've seen that happen in the last 70 years. It's a miracle what has happened. No other nation in the history of the world has ever been dispersed to the four corners and then brought back into the land. But it's happened to Israel. And when you add to that, not just that Israel's in the land, but the uh, climate of the days of Noah, days of sexual immorality and unrighteousness and violence and wickedness, and the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, and you put that together with the fact that Israel's in the land we are facing, we're squaring off with that time frame that the Scripture te- teaches. Now, you say it appears maybe there's more earthquakes and famines. Maybe. I don't know. Some would say and argue against that and say, no, this is just we have better record keeping and we're more aware of what's happening across the planet like at no other time in human history. You could argue that coin as well. But I think you could say the fact is is that the woman's pregnant and she's ready to deliver. But the birth pangs do not start as they're described in the Olivet Discourse until after the church is removed during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got about five minutes left in the program, and a listener would like to know, what do you think of Freemasonry? Well, I think there's a lot of guys who are in it who mean well. Uh, There's a female side of it called the Eastern Star. But let's be clear here. Freemasonry is heresy. If you can find a Masonic Bible, you could probably go to eBay and find one. I've only held one once in my life. They had I, Someone had a copy, and let me purview it, and uh, I went through their, some of their study notes, and it's just filled with heresy. Uh, Freemasons on paper deny the deity of Christ. Freemasons on paper talk about you getting in that great lodge in the sky based on how you have lived. It denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. It denies the substitutionary atonement. So on paper or not, does the average guy in Freemasonry understand that? Absolutely not. Uh, I guess it's probably been 20 years ago, uh, the Southern Baptists, and I'm sure you could get their study. Uh, I have it in my library. It's two volumes. I say volumes or paperbacks. They're probably about 50 or 60 pages each but it was a summary of a study that they had done some 20 years ago because at the time they had 750,000 Southern Baptists who were in Freemasonry and people were challenging it, largely through a guy named John Enkelberg and then one of my professors in seminary who's just gone on to heaven in the last uh, uh, 12, 16 months, um, Dr. Norman Geisler. He did an excellent little pamphlet, uh, pamphlet, you know, booklet, 
25 pages long, basically, basically on the heresies of Freemasonry. That would be a good resource. I, I'd, I'd try to get Dr. Geisler's booklet because the, the Southern Baptist booklet, I don't think, did a very good job, though obviously anyone reading those little two short paperback volumes couldn't come to any other conclusion that it's unwise for a man to be involved in Freemasonry. And really, if you start stepping through the degrees, and most people never do, they never reach, I forgot what it is, the 33rd. 32 or 33. Yeah, something like that. You know, whenever you get to the top, then then you're not ignorant at that point. Um, and it's impossible for you to be a born-again Christian and to embrace the teaching of Scripture and to agree to what you agree when you get to that end point of Freemasonry. But most guys, yeah, it's a place to come, a lot of them to drink. You know, um, uh, just like the Knights of Columbus, they're nothing but bars, you know, for men to get together and get drunk together. It's a pure mockery. Um, but that's not to say that Freemasons haven't done a lot of good things. There are Scottish Rite hospitals and other things. Those are good things. Nothing wrong with that. And so I don't dismiss that or diminish that. But I don't embrace their theology, and I'd never let a Freemason come with his dirty aprons and you know, do something at the gravesite, not if I'm going to be there. So anyway, mm. good question. All right, two minutes. I don't know if you can answer this, but uh, Sue from Beaufort would like to know, what is the difference between the robe of righteousness and the crown of righteousness? Well, one is uh, what we wear. The other is a, a gift that God gives. So God rewards in terms of crowns. And so there's the imperishable crown in Scripture. There's the evangelistic crown, the imperishable crown, the evangelistic crown, there's the crown for going through trials. There's uh, God actually blesses and will reward those who love his second coming. Some people laugh at people like me who talk about the second coming. <laughs> they should be laughing at themselves if they really know Jesus because God actually rewards people who look forward to the second coming, to the return of Christ to the earth. There's a shepherd's crown given to faithful pastors and so forth. So crowns are the rewards that God gives, and he expresses at least five that are in the New Testament. Um, With that said, the robe of righteousness uh, really describes, among other things, the robe is used in two ways in Scripture, one of uh, the works of the believer, but also the imputed righteousness that Christ gives. That's how it's used in the Revelation. One, the works that show that the person is born again, because while you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone, but also the righteousness that Christ imputes to us. And so Jesus tells a parable that unless you're dressed properly, you're not going to come into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if you don't have a place to worship, we are live streaming as we do every week at Community Bible Church, 9.15 and 11 o'clock this Sunday. Uh, We're not meeting in corporately, but uh, we will be there. I'll be there. Other pastors will be there preaching every single week from our pulpit. You can worship with us at communitybiblechurch.us. Go online and you'll see all the different avenues in which you can uh, live stream. 